Glad you guys are here. You have survived six weeks of the book of 1 Peter. So tonight is your graduation night. We're going to finish the book of 1 Peter. We're going to finish this series, this Wednesday night series, and we'll try to put this on social media because a lot of people that come on Wednesday nights don't go to church here regularly, but we won't have any Wednesday night activities at the church at all, kids, adults, anything, until July 12th. We do a bunch of vacation Bible school and that kind of thing in June. So tonight will be our last Wednesday night at the church in general until July 12th. So we'll put that on social media. It'll be in the bulletin. But just wanted to let you know that we'll finish up this series tonight. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here. We're grateful that we live in a country where we can assemble. We can study your word. We can speak our faith. And I pray that you would continue that in this place and that our country would be a beacon of your truth in this world. I pray for our leaders. I pray particularly for those who are suffering from the oppression and from terrorism and from evil in this world that is so present. Lord, I thank you for your mercies and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you guys probably know the the drill. There's a number. You can text your questions in during class. We have kind of three topics in this. We're going to talk about elders and young men. We're going to talk about humility and anxiety. That is really interesting. Then we're going to talk a little bit about Satan. So we usually get questions about Satan. So it's the last topic that Peter covers, so you need to kind of pre-work on your Satan questions, you know, before we get there. So we are talking about, it's called From Failure to Faithful. And what we're doing is studying the book of 1 Peter, but we're kind of setting it in Peter's life because I think it helps to understand what Peter's life was like and what's the setting for this. So let's remember our timetable. You have the cross of Christ, about 33, we'll call it 33. Peter then has his failure of faith. I mean, he basically says, I'll die with you and no, you won't. He runs away. And so he confronts that. Jesus restores him. He begins to preach here. He apparently goes up and preaches in Turkey, what's modern day Turkey now, because that's those are the churches to whom he is writing the letter of 1 Peter. At some point, he goes to Rome, likely about the same time the Apostle Paul is there, by the way. And so in about 67 AD, both he and the Apostle Paul are killed. That's not good. <laughs> Let's reset that. There we go. So whatever I did, don't want to do that again. So I'm just going to point at this. <laughs> so he is in Rome, 67, and Nero kills him by crucifixion, according to church tradition. Paul is killed by the emperor Nero by beheading because he's a Roman citizen, also according to church tradition. And so that's kind of what, what we think is happening uh, to Peter in his life. So he begins with a failure of his faith, and he ends by being faithful even to the point of death. He basically emulates Christ's suffering. We talked about, when we talked about suffering, we talked about one of the reasons suffering has meaning. I'm on a rabbit trail now, but it's interesting. One of the reasons that suffering has meaning, if you remember from two lessons ago, is there's this way in which we sort of emulate Christ's walk. If we are gonna be Christ followers, Romans chapter 8 says we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so part of that is participating, if you will, in 
suffering. It refines our faith. So there are a lot of ways that God uses our, our trials, our difficulties, our challenges in life. But one of those ways is we participate in the suffering of Christ. And that's exactly what Peter's life is. He literally participates in the suffering of Christ. In fact, he's going to mention that again in this lesson. So let's dive in to chapter 5. This is the last chapter of the book. He's going to begin by talking to elders and young men. His first topic. But there's a thread that's going to run through all of this, and it's the thread of humility. So, 1 Peter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So let's talk about elders for a second. This is clearly referring to an office in the church. This word can mean older people, but it also is used for the, uh, the office of elder in the church. So this word for elder is presbyteros in Greek, but it's where we get our word presbyterian or presbytery, and it basically is the institution of elders who would oversee the church. This other word, overseers, is synonymous with elders. It is the word episkopos in Greek. It's where we get the word episcopalian or episcopal. You'll also see this word translated bishop. So there are two words for this office in the church, for the office of elders, sometimes called overseers, sometimes called elders. It appears from the text here uh, in Acts that they're interchangeable terms. And they just give you a different view of what an elder's role is. This was really normal. In the early church, pretty normative. We see in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, as they go and they begin to plant churches, people believed that before they would leave, they would appoint elders. And they would say, you are shepherds of this flock, and then they would move on to the next town. So the idea of elders in the church is a, is a normative thing in the early church. Not all church polity, not all church congregations or denominations have elders today, but it, was, it was, appears to be normative in the early church. So it's a very normal thing, very normal office. And Peter wants to appeal to them for a particular reason. Two reasons, one of which we'll see in just a second. But one is he's writing to people who he expects to encounter trials. And in times of trial, you need your shepherds, if you will. You need the elders, those who are mature in the faith, to care for the flock and help them understand why is this happening to us? You know, how do we deal with persecution? How do we deal with trials? How do we deal with economic difficulties in your life? So he begins to talk to the elders about that. The elders' role, this is really interesting, and uses this model of a shepherd. That shepherd idea is well-known in that time, but it's still well-known to us. I mean, think all the way back 3,000 years ago, you read the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And we, under, we still understand it. Jesus uses that imagery of a shepherd a lot. And so what Peter's saying is, you're shepherds of the flock. What does that mean? Let me take you back to John chapter 10. I'll just read this to you. But in John 10 is the famous passage that Jesus talks about. He says, I am the good shepherd. He said, the good shepherd lays down his life for his flock. The hired hand 
who's not the shepherd, who owns the sheep, so he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep because he runs away because he does not care anything for the sheep. He does not care about them. He says, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so Peter is making a great charge to the office of elder. Those who hold that office are worthy of respect, but they have a great responsibility to shepherd and care for the flock, to put the, the Christians' needs above their own. They're not in a position of authority as much as they're in a position of responsibility. I mean, you think about a shepherd. Is, does the shepherd have authority over the sheep? Yeah, he basically leads them where to go. But more than authority, he has the responsibility to keep them safe, to lead them by still waters. You know, the, the idea is from Psalm 23. So elders have an important role. Martin Luther said in his commentary on uh, 1 Peter, he said that an elder's role is basically shepherding involves teaching the truth of the gospel and holding to the truth. And sure enough, in the other passages in uh, Timothy and Titus, where Paul talks about the qualifications of elders, one of them is the ability to teach. And it doesn't necessarily mean the ability to stand up in a pulpit and preach, but it means the ability to sit down with someone and open up the Bible and speak the truth and help guide people into truth. That's what Martin Luther said shepherding looked like. Well, Satan distorts the truth. And so that's the reason that in the course of this chapter, Peter's going to talk about Satan, the enemy, the adversary. So if elders are responsible for helping to shepherd the flock, they have an enemy who wants to destroy the flock, just like a real-life shepherd does. Martin Luther said the way you protect the flock is preach the truth of the gospel and hold to the truth. That seems to be what the Apostle Paul has in mind in the book of Acts. He set the stage for this because I want you to see this passage because Peter and Paul, you're just going to see this all fit together very well. When Paul was on his way to Rome, he was a prisoner. He was being taken to Rome to stand trial before Nero. So in this same time frame, he stopped near Ephesus, which was a big city in those days. And there was a big church and Paul spent a lot of time. And the elders from that church made a journey to visit him while he was uh, at a stop there on the ship. And he speaks to them, and that's what I want to show you, because you get this same idea. This is Paul talking to the elders. He says, therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. He, he tells them, I'm never going to see you again. I'm probably going to die. He said, but I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, the full truth about the gospel, the good parts, the hard parts, everything about it. He said, you need to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's our word again. Be shepherds of the church of God. There's our shepherd word again, which he bought with his blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So he's using this imagery of wolves would like to pick off some of the sheep if you're not paying attention, if you're not protecting them. What, what do you mean by that, Paul? He says, even from your own number, even elders will rise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples on another path. So be on your guard. I think Luther is accurately reading what Peter means when he says shepherd the flock. 
And what Paul seems to have in mind, and that is, don't let anyone take some of your flock, wolves, and distort the truth and lead them away. And that's Satan's MO, isn't it? That's exactly what Satan does. Satan is a liar, but he's actually not usually a blatant liar. Satan is wise enough to know that you take some truth and you just bend it a little bit. And that's the best kind of lie. That's what Paul is warning them about, is there'll be people that'll come and distort the truth and lead some of your flock off in a different direction. And that's what Peter's really serious about. That's the charge he's giving to elders. He said, you have a significant duty here to guard the, the truth of the gospel and that your flock continues to pursue the truth of that gospel. Well, immediately after this, the next thing, he turns to the young men in the congregation. And he says, young men, in the same way, what does he mean in the same way? He says, I just told the elders that they have a responsibility. Likewise, you also have a responsibility. Be submissive or subject yourselves to those who are older. This is the same word, and I don't, I'm not crazy about the NIV's translation. I, I think he's still talking about elders. In the same way, subject yourselves to the elders, to the shepherds of your congregation. All of you, everybody, clothe yourselves with humility one toward another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, we've seen this word a lot, this idea of submissive, or actually better is subject yourselves. If you remember, Peter says, Christians, subject yourselves to government authorities. He says to slaves, subject yourselves to your masters. Again, you get this idea of willingly subject yourselves. In other words, this is a, a role you're being asked to play. Be good citizens. Serve your masters well. You are a witness to them. Uh, wives, subject yourselves to your husbands who don't believe because God can use that to bring them around. Here, young men, don't be rebellious, but subject yourselves willingly to those who are more mature in the faith, who have been given the responsibility to shepherd you. Now, in none of those cases is he saying, do whatever they say despite what the Bible tells you. That, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, humility says, I will voluntarily subject myself to your authority. We do it all the time in society, and God's saying it's important in the church. I like one of the things we talk about in our child-rearing classes so I just want to put this in perspective about this kind of voluntary nature. One of the things that happens today is people raising kids think that children and adults are equals. And that's not true at all. In other words, we'll treat kids the same way we treat adults. That's a disastrous formula for raising kids. And in one of the child-rearing courses I read many, many years ago, I like this little saying. It says, look, the parent and the child are spiritually both made in God's image but time has not made us equal. Time has not made us equal. That was a great saying, because the point is that we're not equal. I'm the parent, you're the child. That's a function of time. I mean, there are some parents that need to be parented by their kids, I think. But the point is, time has not made us equal. What the New Testament, what you'll see a lot there is, maturity has given us different roles. So is Peter saying here, young men, you're not as good as the elders. 
God doesn't love you as much as the elders. You're not worth as much as they are. Of course he's not saying any of those things, but he is saying this. Maturity has given us different roles. When he spoke to the elders, he said, you have been given a responsibility from God. Carry it out. Put the flock before yourself. And then to the young men, he said, subject yourselves willingly to those who have been given this role. Maturity oftentimes gives us different roles, but it's always this idea of humility, and humility means voluntarily fulfilling what builds up the whole body of Christ. I think Tom Schreiner says it this way, and I really like this quote. He said, smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation, Peter says all of us, shows some humility, adorns itself with humility. When believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they're less apt to be offended by others. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run lovingly and smoothly. And I think that's really true. That's why I think he calls out certain groups of people, but in the end he said, all of you, clothe yourselves in humility. In fact, that word, I'm going to go back on that, that clothe yourselves is a pretty technical word. It basically, like it says, tie on like you're putting on an apron. You know, you're putting on an outer garment. He said, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go put on humility in all of your relationships because God opposes pride, but he always gives grace to humility. So this isn't about status, in the New Testament, you're not going to find a lot about status, whether it's slaves and masters, uh, wives and husbands. It's not so much about status as it is about humbly fulfilling a role that builds up. In this case, the young man, he said, your role is to subject yourselves to your elders, to their guidance. They're charged with your spiritual health. So he, this idea of virtue, though, one, one last thought on that. This is hard in the church because our culture doesn't consider it a virtue. Our culture doesn't consider humility a virtue. Voluntarily subjecting yourself, in fact, that word, uh, be submissive or submit yourself, we, we kind of recoil at that. We go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, who are you telling? I got rights here. Don't be telling me to submit myself. I have rights. We live in a culture that wants to insist on its rights. And the New Testament wants to basically insist that we all be humble. We all recognize that we are creatures and sinners, and let's show a little humility toward one another. Which do you think leads to more harmonious existence? Well, pick up a newspaper, and I think you'll say the church. I think God knows the best way. But it is hard for us. We literally have to clothe ourselves in humility. We have to remind ourselves that not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. In every one of these submit yourselves, Subject yourselves phrases, whether it's here or elsewhere in the New Testament, every single one of them is basically saying, you should voluntarily give up some of your, quote, rights. That's what the New Testament is saying. It's not saying, oh, you're better than you. Oh, young men, elders are way better than you are. Uh, citizens, government's way smarter and better than you are. Nobody believes that. But anyway, government is way better and smarter than you are. That's not what it's saying. It's saying rights are not the issue. Humility is the issue. So you're going to see that uh, thread run through this. And here's a really important transmission or transition that he makes. He said, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand so that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him 
because he cares for you. This is a verse you should memorize. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So he transitions, he says, look, this humility towards one another is what you're called to do. He says, and humble yourself before God under his mighty hand. That's an Old Testament phrase. What it basically says, think about this. God says, I brought you out of Egypt by my mighty hand. That phrase is used when God does things that we were like, never saw that coming, didn't even think that was possible. In other words, oh my goodness, look at the God that we serve. Can you believe what he is able to do? That's what that phrase means. It says, submit yourself to that. This is the God that can do impossible things. So subject yourselves to that. And that humility, subjecting ourselves, is an expression of humility. He says, humble yourselves to God as well. Why? He says, you can throw all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I want to talk about this idea for a minute because we all struggle with a lot of anxiety in our culture. I mean, if you just look at the number of antidepressants uh, cases of depression, uh, panic attacks. I mean, all the statistics in America. I mean, think about it. We're the most prosperous nation on the earth. Billions of people in this world look at your and my life and go, boy, wouldn't that be nice? But the statistics in America show that, well, actually, it's filled with a lot of anxiety. That word anxiety, by the way, uh, or worry, it's translated worry as well. Exactly the same word. Uh, anxiety and worry means to be pulled in different directions, not knowing what to do, being indecisive. We really are just filled with anxiety in general. We live in a fast-paced world. We live in a world that has so much information. There's tons of anxiety in our world. And Peter says, you need to cast that on God because he cares for you. Here's why I think that's difficult for us. Let me see if this resonates with you. I think this is difficult because many of us are functional deists. Functional deists. And let me tell you what I mean by that. A deist, D-E-I-S-T. Deism is the belief in God, but it's belief in a God who sort of set the world in motion and is not that involved. It's just kind of all natural laws and things work themselves out. And that's deism which is not what the New Testament teaches. I mean, good heavens, the New Testament is the record of God invading our world, literally coming down to earth to lift us up and dying on a cross for us. But deism is more of a distant God. It's a God that makes the earth, makes the world, and sets it in motion, and you and I have to kind of navigate our own lives. We don't believe that. We read the New Testament and realize this is not deism. This is a very personal God, a God who loves us lavishly, who has come to find us and take us home. That's anything but deism. But functionally, we kind of are because we live our lives as though God's not actually involved in our life. It's like, it's up to me. Yeah, I got God. I got a card in my back pocket that says, get out of hell, go straight to heaven when I die. But in the meantime, we sort of act like, well, it's up to me. We're functionally, the way we tend to live, even though we know better, we are kind of functionally deists. And I think that breeds huge anxiety. What Peter's saying in this passage is, you can cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now that, by the way, 
in that time period was a startling statement. Here's a, Simon Kistemacher says it this way. He says, of all the religions in the world, this is absolutely true, only the Judeo-Christian religion, in other words, only your Bible, only the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, only that religion teaches that God cares for his children. God cares for those who follow him. In fact, he cares so much he bids them bring all their problems to him. This is not what other religions believe. They believe you serve him. Well, we believe that we surrender to Christ. Everything I have is yours and we obey, but we're surrendering to a God who cared enough to come and die on a cross for us. This idea of God caring for us is so radical. You and I sit through a lot of church services and for the past 20 years or so, the 20 years before that, we heard a lot of fire and brimstone. The last 20 years, we've heard God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And so we think, well, of course God loves us. It's not of course. This is historically very rare. In our world, most of the people in this world do not believe that whatever God they believe in, whether overtly or functionally, actually cares about them. And when we, we forget that, and we forget about God being involved in our lives, we might as well be deists. We might as well be, I have a far off God and I'm on my own. The fact that God cares about us is what makes it possible for us to cast our anxiety on him. Schreiner says it this way, and here's how it ties into humility, and he actually gets this exactly right. He says, worry or anxiety is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, we're convinced that we have to solve all the problems in our lives on our own strength. That sounds a little like deism, doesn't it? I know there's a God there, but I'm kind of on my own in solving this problem. That breeds a lot of anxiety, but it is kind of a form of pride. He says the only God they trust in is themselves. When believers throw their worries, and by that way, that word cast is like what you would use to cast a net. I mean, it literally is throw them. You know, don't just drop them, throw your worries. Get those things as far away from you as you can. They express their trust in his mighty hand, acknowledging he is Lord and sovereign over all life. Submitting to God and obeying Jesus Christ and following him and becoming like him means that we don't get to hold on to our anxieties. Now, I know you're saying to yourself, I don't want to hold on to my anxieties. I don't like them. I know. But we do, don't we? Whether that's a form of pride, like, you know, I'll tell you my problem with this. It's not that I don't think God can solve this problem. He just doesn't seem to take direction very well. I mean, I pray and I say, I need you to solve this problem. But, but wait, before you run off and do that, I need you to do it in this way. Because I don't want to be uncomfortable in this process. And I don't want any difficulties or hardships, so if you could do a little smiting over there and a little blessing over there, I think this will work out fine. But the problem with surrender is we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And we say, not my will, but thy will be done. And that is so counterintuitive, isn't it? It's like, wait, I'm giving up control? I don't know if I'm comfortable giving up control. And yet, what is the scripture saying? The only way you will ever let go of that anxiety, is perversely to give up control. The pride, the control, is what makes the anxiety. And that's why Peter just so graphically and vividly says, I want you to literally throw all your anxiety onto God. 
because he cares for you. What he's saying is God is willing, he cares for you, he's willing to take your anxiety and he is able to take your anxiety. Both of those things need to be true. See, a lot of religions think God is able to solve my problems, but is he willing to solve my problem? The God of, uh, uh, of the New Testament is both willing and able to solve our problems, to take our anxiety, to come and live it and be with us in the midst of it. Okay? So you see this idea of humility running through it, whether it's in the roles we're called to play, elders, young men, or whether it's in dealing with our trials and difficulties and anxiety, you just see this humility running through it, this willingness to subject ourselves to one another or to God's mighty hand. And Peter says, if only you understood that that's how you cast your anxiety off. Question? Mm -hmm. I have one about elders. How do we recognize good elders, ones that we should submit to? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the scripture doesn't necessarily say, it doesn't give us a kind of a checklist, you know, like, okay, we're going to uh, rate our elders every year. Yeah, I'm sorry, you're getting a C minus this year. You know, one more, you're out of here. You know, it doesn't really do that. What we look for from elders is, uh, this would be true for any role that we're playing. Because you might ask me this same question and say, Bible has a lot to say to husbands. How would I know what a good husband looks like? Yeah, we're not going there. But you, it's just a hypothetical, right? But seriously, you would answer that same question. You'd say, well, we will be better husbands the more we do what the New Testament says, that we love our wives like Christ loved the church. You know, you, you, that'd be an easy question to answer. You'd say, I know we're not perfect. We still sin, but that's the measure of a good husband. The measure of a good elder is one that shepherds the flock, one that holds to the truth of the gospel and keeps the flock from the wolves that want to distort the truth and lead them away, to use the words of the scripture. So I'd say good, good elders are ones that fulfill their God-given role, just like good husbands are the ones that love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's a good question. Okay? Well, I really want to talk a little bit about Satan. Well, actually, I don't, but we have to, because Peter does. He says this. He moves straight from this idea of anxiety to the cause of a lot of our anxiety. And that is difficulties and trials and relational troubles and persecution, all kinds of difficulties. Difficulties I create with my sin or difficulties that are forced upon me from outside. Our God is big enough to care about us even when we goof up. Because that's a question you get a lot of times to say, well, you know, I caused this, so guess I'm on my own. You're never on your own. Yes, we cause it with sin. There are consequences of sin. But you never go, this is like taking your warranty in. You ever taking your car in for warranty work and they say, you see this fine print? That's not covered. God doesn't do that. You know, it's like, hey God, I'm in a lot of trouble. He goes, yeah, I know, and you caused it, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Sorry, warranty is null and void. You know, That's not the way God works. You're never alone, no matter what the cause of our suffering. But he's going to talk about the devil, Satan, and he says this, be self-controlled and alert, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world, brothers and sisters, in other words, fellow Christians is what that word means, are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you 
to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a while in this life, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, the Bible uses a couple of words. Uh, the word devil, and then, of course, the word Satan, which doesn't, uh, is, uh, they're probably used about the same amount. The word devil in Greek is the word for accuser or slanderer. And that's a word that you see used about Satan a lot. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer. The word Satan means enemy or adversary. And so you see in Satan's character, he is our enemy. He is our adversary. And the way in which he goes about that is to accuse. And I want you to think about this because you've seen in Scripture, like think of the book of Job, Satan goes to God and he begins to accuse Job. He said, you think he's righteous? He's not very righteous. Oh, no. If you've seen what I'd seen, you'd know he's not a righteous guy. In fact, if you make him suffer, I'll just bet you he curses you. He accuses us to God. He's standing and saying to God, they're not what you think they are. They're all sinners. They're liars. They're thieves. They don't really love you. They don't really trust you. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer. He'll promise us things and say, this will make you happy. And then we do it, and then he goes, did you see that? He just sinned. He entices and he accuses. But here's the really insidious part. He also accuses God to us. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we get into trials and difficulties, what is Satan saying to you and me? Well, your God doesn't really care about you. Your God has left you all alone in this. Your God doesn't care about you because you're not worth it. Your God is not powerful enough to help you. If your God really loved you, he wouldn't let you suffer. That's how Satan accuses God to us. And so he's kind of playing both sides of this. And that's what that word the devil means, is he's accusing us. He goes around like a roaring lion. He says, now Peter has every reason to understand this. He said, Satan is your enemy. I want to take you back in time. Now, remember, this is near the end of his life, maybe 66, 65 A.D. Take you back to when Jesus was alive. Think 30 to 33, and Peter is with Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says to, to Peter. He said, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. That ought to make your knees weak. When Jesus said, by the way, Satan wants to know if he can play with you. Right? He wants to sift you like wheat. Satan is asked to let me let him find out how firm your faith really is. He says, but I have prayed for you, Simon. Uh, Simon is Peter's name, his uh, given name. I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've turned back, this is Jesus saying, but it will. And when you turn back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. But Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, Peter, before the rooster crows this morning, you're going to deny three times that you even know me at all. Well, you remember that incident. But I want you to put that in the perspective now of Peter at the end of his life saying, oh, I know Satan. I know he's an enemy. I know what he can do. He lied to me about my own faith. And he accused me to Jesus. And he thought that was the end of it. But it wasn't, was it? Peter came back. Remember, he sees Jesus. He dives off that boat after the resurrection, and he swims to Jesus, and Jesus takes him back. And he says, now, remember what Jesus says to him in John chapter 20? 
He says, Peter, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, then go feed my sheep. Well, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, I, I do love you. He said, then go take care of my flock. You see how all this imagery comes together? Peter, the old man writing this letter, is thinking back through his life. He knows very well Satan's an enemy. He knows very well Satan, the accuser, can just really sow doubt and anxiety and fear in our lives. Satan is the ultimate terrorist. I mean, as I was listening to the horrific uh, news coming out about the Manchester bombing two days ago, and you hear this idea of terrorism again, and just the evil and the fear and the suffering that it imposes, I thought to myself as I'm thinking about this lesson, Satan is the ultimate terrorist. I mean, listen to what he says. He says, he's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is accusing us. He tries to intimidate us. And the trials in our lives, the difficulties that we face, that's the roar he uses to terrify us. The trials in our lives are the roar of Satan hoping to terrify us to make us fearful, to make us doubt, to make us wonder, to weaken our faith. Satan is a terrorist. He wants to intimidate us. He'll do anything he can to destroy our trust in Christ because he knows, whether we do or not, that's the only hope we have. You're saved by grace through faith, through trust in Jesus Christ. That's the one thing Satan wants to do. He doesn't just want to hurt my body. He doesn't, cancer doesn't happen, and Satan goes, great, you died, now you're mine. No, he has to destroy our faith to destroy our eternity. He knows because of the cross that persecuting Christians, beheading Paul, crucifying Peter, doesn't win the battle for him. He only wins if he can terrorize us and intimidate us and make us fearful and anxious so that we do not live by faith. That's what Satan is out for. The trials in our lives are the war he uses to try to terrify us. And they seem terrifying to us at times. And Peter knows that. Sitting at this point in his life, he says, look, I've been there. I've done that. I was terrified. I did fail. He said, and I'm writing to you to warn you. That's what Satan is going to do. You elders, you shepherd this flock. You young men, humility, subject yourselves to one another, all of you with humility Bond together because all of you around the world are being attacked in the same way. You're never alone. And then he says, resist him. James says, same thing, same word, James 4, 7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He says, resist him. Resistance isn't passive. What, is he, what does he mean? How do we resist him? He says, resist him by standing firm in your faith. By holding on to your trust, no matter what the circumstances are, you will not let go of Jesus Christ. You will not let go of your trust. It is a pushing back against the trials in this world. We don't suffer and just sit there and take it. We suffer and we exercise our faith. The Bible talks about faith working itself out through love, as the Apostle Paul says. In other words, the more trials we have in our life, the more we want to go flex that faith muscle, 
The more we want to go say, Lord, I don't know why this is happening, and this is unpleasant, but I trust you. And so I'm still going to be out there forgiving my enemies, being compassionate to people who don't deserve it, taking care of the least of these. I'm still going to use my faith no matter what happens to me. He says, that's how you resist the devil. That's how we overcome. Question? Yeah, question about Satan. Did he fall from heaven or has he always existed? And if he fell from heaven, what was the temptation? Is there temptation to do wrong in heaven? That's a great question. And I just got to warn you, I have a view on this, but it's not a view that everybody has on this. So if I offend you in what I'm saying, great, we'll study the Bible together. I may be wrong. Here's the part that I am sure about. Satan has not always existed. Satan is a created being. Satan is an angel. I don't know what you think of when I say the word angel, but I want you to think about created beings who exist on a little different plane than we do. Angels aren't necessarily, you know, wings and harps and that kind of thing, but they are beings that inhabit a spiritual realm. And they are created by God to serve God and serve his purposes. And so he is an angel and he rebelled against God. A lot of passages, beautiful passage in Isaiah, where it says, they called him Lucifer there. Lucifer, you said in your heart, I will set my throne above the heavens. In other words, I want to be God. That's true. In the garden, what does he say to Adam and Eve? You know, God's lying to you. He just doesn't want you to be God. Well, what game's he playing? He's like, I'm going to be God. And you fools are going to rebel against God, and then you're mine. Satan, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this present world. He rebelled against God and wants to make his own kingdom. In the book of Revelation, you see him. I'm tying a lot of stuff together, so if this is too fast, I apologize. But in the book of Revelation, you see Satan making his own little trinity. He's got the Antichrist the Christ figure, only the opposite, and he's got the false prophet, the Holy Spirit, only the bad version. And so he makes his own little trinity. He rules over the people of the earth. But what's always, always in his mind is knowing that Jesus Christ has nailed all of our sins to the cross. He has, in Colossians says it this way, it says he put to shame the powers of this world. Satan, in his fury, realizes that I've been overcome, and yet he continues to fight against God. He is a fallen angel, a rebellious angel, a created being who, in the end, will be destroyed and judged by God. Don't want you to think about Satan and God are equal. This is not like a Rocky movie, you know, where God got to go into training because, man, he may win, he may lose. It's not even close. In the Luke, Jesus says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven as he's cast out of heaven. Book of Revelation, he's thrown into the pit of fire along with death is also destroyed. There's never any question who wins this, but you see that sheer terrorist rebellion in Satan. So Satan is a created being. He's an angel who's fallen. Now, this is the second part is where where you have to do a little bit of conjecture. But it seems to me that angels obviously have some element of will like we do. 
and some angels did not follow God. They rebelled like we did. God clearly, to have love, you have to have the ability to make some kind of response or choice. And so it appears angels have that ability. And it appears that some of them chose to rebel against God. They sinned. And so I reason, and if you disagree, that's fine, that it is possible for them to sin against God even though they lived in the heavenly realm because God had allowed them to do that. Now, different people have a different opinion about that. I just point to the fact that Satan rebelled. He was cast from heaven and he will be destroyed. That's a great question about Satan. Let me ask another one though, because you should ask this one. Does Satan have supernatural powers? Yes, in the sense that angels, messengers of God through all the Bible, they don't have the powers God has. They're not omniscient, they're not omnipresent, they're not um, uh, omnipowerful. In other words, they have nowhere near the power that God has, but they exist, they're different kind of beings. And they appear to be able to do things that to us appear like, okay, that's not natural, right? So angels have that ability. They seem to exist not just in this physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. But Satan doesn't know what you are thinking. Satan doesn't see your future. Satan doesn't have the ability to come and grab you and put you under the imperious curse and make you do things. He does not have the powers of God, but he is very wily He's the accuser, he's the slanderer, he's the liar. Jesus said Satan is a liar, in fact, he's the father of lies. And that's how Satan wants to corrupt us. I know, that was long-winded, but it's just a fascinating topic. <laughs> Can he be in more than one place at a time? Yeah, great question. Can Satan be in more than one place at a time? There's, let me just put, answer it this way. There's nothing in scripture that I have read that would indicate that angels have that ability. I mean, as you see angels, good angels, you know, being sent on missions from God, they do things that you go, okay, human beings aren't able to do that, but they do not appear, to my knowledge, anywhere in scripture to be able to be in multiple places at one time or have some of the more godly powers, you know, the ability to be omniscient or omnipowerful. I don't see any evidence of that. So if he's after you, I'm okay? You see, this is the kind of thinking. You know, you're a sharp bunch. You are probably the guys that are thinking. Remember that old joke that you, uh, guys are out in the, in the woods, two guys are out in the woods, and they see a grizzly bear coming at them, and one guy goes, oh, no, what are we going to do? And the other guy's lacing up his shoes, and, and he says, what are you doing? We can't outrun this bear. And he said, I just have to outrun you, right? <laughs> I see where you're going with this. You're like, we just need somebody to occupy Satan, and the rest of us will be okay. Satan, think about Satan working in this way. I mean, it's going to make so much sense of what's going on in our world. Think about if you're Satan and you've got a business plan and you basically want to conquer humanity, you want them all to be rebels against God and forfeit their hope of eternal life by not putting their trust in Christ, and you want them to buy into some of the lies you're going to tell them about, oh, you can be successful, you can be happy, and sex will make you happy, money will make you happy. You want them to buy into these lies. You can't afford to run around and do one-on-ones with everybody. So here's what you do. You corrupt the institutions. Brilliant strategy. Nobody said Satan was stupid. This is brilliant. Look at our world. You see, complete, from God's point of view, completely corrupted institutions. You have blatant secular humanism 
Secular humanism is Satan's idea. It says, you are the center of the universe. You are basically good, and you can solve all your problems. That's a brilliant lie, because now I don't need God anymore, and Satan goes, nice, I just got about a billion of you. You see what I'm saying? Satan works through institutions and powers. In the book of Revelation, you see clearly Satan working through evil institutions of power. When you see oppression, terrorism, you see violence, you see people being treated, the Holocaust. I mean, think of all the things where you see just incredible abuse of government power. That's Satan basically using the institutions of this world to magnify his ability. He can't come to every one of us, but he can corrupt the institutions of this world. That's what it means to be a fallen world. That's why God says we are not at home in this world because the institutions of this world are corrupted. God's gonna make them whole at the day of judgment and we're taking the truth into the world and we are making it, repairing the world as we go. But Satan works through the institutions of this world. It's a brilliant strategy and it's part of why Christians suffer. Does Satan come and does Satan say, by the way, I'm gonna put you in jail? No, but he uses a government that's corrupted to oppress Christians. So Satan is, is not foolish. He's corrupting everything about this world and that makes it hostile to those who follow Christ. Great question. So why does God allow Satan to exist? Yeah, well, okay, so that's a slightly different question than why did he create him in the first place if he knew he was going to rebel, so, but I'm going to answer that one. Why does he allow him to exist? In other words, just smite him now, right? And the answer is, in this book, he said, oh, I will. I will. But it serves my purpose. Doesn't serve Satan's purpose, serves my purpose. Well, what is your purpose, God? My purpose. Remember what Jesus said? I came to seek and save the lost. Peter is going to say, don't consider God's waiting to be a sign of weakness. God wants as many to come and be saved as possible. God is forbearing. So in a sense that you and I might say, well, we're near the end of our lives. You can just end it now. And, and God says, Jesus actually said that. He said, I have other people that I need to reach. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, I have sheep that are not in this sheep pen. Because the Jews were like, hey, save us. Who cares about the Gentiles? Jesus said, I've got other sheep that I need to go find and bring home. And so God has a purpose in fulfilling his redemptive purpose. And part of that purpose is that for now, evil gets to continue. But there's no doubt that he will destroy evil. Okay, a little confusion. Does Satan have minions? or other fallen angels in his powers? Because if Satan is telling us lies, how does that happen when he's not among us? Well, good question. Let me start at the back end. Satan lies to us a lot of times through advertising. I mean, where are the biggest lies you've heard lately? I heard if you drink this beer, women will like you. I found that the more beer you drink, the less attractive you actually become. Have you guys ever realized that? I'm joking a little, but my point is Satan lies to us in a lot of ways through a lot of flawed, broken, rebellious institutions in our world. But here's a great question. Does Satan have minions? Yes, he does. He has little minion looking, probably little yellow one-eyed guys, you know, but basically most people think 
that when Satan rebelled, there were angels that came with him. You're going to hear people teach that a third of the angels rebelled with him. It's a little sketchy, and it all based on one little passage in Revelation. It's looking at a vision. It says, I saw the dragon, and I saw him sweep a third of the stars from the sky. Well, that's a little cryptic. It's apocalyptic literature. But that's where that old saying is a third of the angels rebelled came from. But one thing you do know from a variety of reasons, it's likely that Satan's not working alone, that there are demons. When you see the word demons in the New Testament, those are fallen angels. Those are people with Satan. That word demon means fallen angels who are also opposed to God. They're not some separate existence. So yes, Satan does kind of have minions. He has other people. I'm going to recommend a book to you. It's, it's not true in the sense that this isn't exactly how it works, but C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters. He wrote this back during World War II, but it is so, I mean, it's, it's amusing as you read it. It's about uh, a devil, a fallen angel, a demon, and he's got a young demon under his control. And this young demon is supposed to go corrupt this guy. And so there are letters back and forth saying, here's how you corrupt this guy. Here's what you need to be doing. Well, obviously that's kind of made up, but he brilliantly, as C.S. Lewis does, gets at the idea and you read it, you go, I see, yes, that's how Satan would corrupt people. It's a great little read, small book, well worth it. The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Kind of gives an insight into that idea of how does Satan corrupt us? Good, great questions, by the way. Well, let's finish off with this idea. I'd like to uh, finish with just stepping back from everything we've talked about. One of the things Peter wants to do at the end of his life is he wants desperately to write to believers and say, I'm gonna tell you that what Jesus said about having trouble is true, but I want you to take heart. Even though we have an enemy in this world, even though suffering is coming, Look how he kind of ends this. He said, the God of grace who called you, who chose you for his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered, it's true, you'll have trouble in this world. Jesus said it. Peter says, I've had it. He says, and you will too. But after you've suffered a while, he will restore you. He will make you strong. He'll make you firm and steadfast. He is the true power in the universe forever and ever. Amen. And so the last hopeful thing I'd say to you is this. You say, well, I don't know that I can really relate to that. I can't relate to the Peter who died on a cross with that kind of faith. I mean, I can only hope that we have the courage of our faith for whatever God happens to call us to, that our faith will be strong. But you know, I can really relate to Peter's life. I can relate to being a failure, and not just once, many times over. And maybe you can too. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, you know... I'm not very faithful. I'm not the man. I'm not the woman of God that I want to be. I know I'm not the man or woman of God that God calls me to be. I understand that. And neither was Peter. And that's why I love this story. Is you see him begin just like you and me, and you see God take him and grow his faith through all his trials to the glory of eternal life. And he will do the same thing for you. God bless you, and I'll see you in July.